When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Vertical Podcast is brought to you by SoFi. Refinancing your student loans with SoFi can save you an average of $19,000. Plus, you'll get access to their entrepreneur program that can help you grow your business. Learn more at SOFI.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. Hey, it's JJ Redick. Whatever you're wearing right now, Mack Weldon is better. Mack Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. Mack Weldon will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershorts, hoodies, and sweatpants that you will ever wear. And Mack Weldon wants you to be comfortable. So if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it and they will still refund you. No questions asked. They aren't just comfortable. Mack Weldon looks good and it performs well too. It's good for everyday life, going to work, going on dates, and working out. All their products are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using promo code JJ. It's easy shopping, great customer service, good-looking, super comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, and hoodies. That's MacWeldon.com, 20% off using promo code JJ. This episode of the Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick is brought to you by SeatGeek, the smartest way to buy and sell tickets. Yahoo Sports presents the Vertical Podcast with J.J. Reddick, powered by digital media. Find your voice. And now, your host, J.J. Reddick. Welcome back to the Vertical Podcast with J.J. Reddick. This week, we're joined by my good friend and former teammate, Spencer Hawes, who made an appearance on the podcast back in February to talk about the trade deadline Originally, this was going to be a a special Mother's Day podcast. I know we're a little bit delayed, as circumstances would have it. Took my wife and my son up to Santa Barbara this weekend to kind of get away and and treat my wife to a Mother's Day weekend. Shout out to all the moms out there, Spencer. What did you do for your mom for Mother's Day? Um, well, JJ, to be honest. Uh... I thought my mom was going to be out of town. That was her and my father's original intention. They were going to go over to Eastern Washington. So uh, when I found out they had uh, indeed stayed, I had to make kind of a uh, last-minute run down to Nordstrom. And then uh, we went, and my sister and I cooked her dinner. Yeah, I saw something on Snapchat. It looked like king salmon or something. Did you get that fresh from the local fish market in Seattle? We did. We got that good salmon. But then, you know, I'm... I'm not the most expertise when it comes to the culinary arts, so uh, I ended up kind of butchering the vinaigrette on there. Salvaged it midway through, but it was pretty close there for a minute. Good for you. I did call my mother on on Mother's Day. She's on the other side of the country, which makes it a little difficult. Here's a question I have for you, though. Like on Father's Day last year, I had a bunch of random people text me Happy Father's Day. And for me, I think that's kind of weird. And on Mother's Day, like I didn't even text my sisters Happy Mother's Day. I texted my mother, and then I obviously was with my wife. But those are the, or I talked to my mom. But those are the only two people that I said Happy Mother's Day to. Is that wrong? Is that weird? Like, what's your opinion on I, that? I think I think you always associate it with either obviously your mom first, and then your grandmother. I think it takes some getting used to when it comes your generation starts being the mothers and the fathers. I think that takes some time to getting used to. There's an adjustment period there. Right. So you're not necessarily going to text me on father's day happy father's day well now i will <laughs> i've been i've been reminded i've been queued up speaking of snapchat by the way i mentioned it earlier i also noticed on snapchat that you shaved your beard off which makes you look very young i kind of did the same thing after the season i i drop about three to five years when i shave but your haircut was the same what's the plan with that you've gotten a lot of pub recently i don't know if you saw but um well, I know you saw because you were there, but I don't know if you saw, but it kind of went viral when you and um, Jeremy Lin went went double man bun, matching twins double man bun. What's the plan there with the hair, bud? There's still really no plan. Um, I want to cut it, to be honest, but you just kind of get attached to it a little bit, and it's it's about two years in now, a little over two years, 
without you know really chopping it down so it's it's one of those things that you know I, I know it has to come to an end soon but I don't think it looks good myself, but I keep getting these random compliments that kind of just keep me going. I did see your name on on a top five list of best hairs in the NBA. I don't know how recent that list was. Um, yeah, it was for the man bun though. Oh, and here's really? the thing. Yeah, here's the thing with the man bun, and and similar to like my haircut, which is basically just like a you know a heavy fade and then a comb over. Yeah, you got I feel like I feel like they're just they got so trendy and ubiquitous and, and now I'm searching for something else. I, I just you know, I cut my hair off as soon as the season ended and I was like, This is great, you know, I'll keep my hair short all summer. But then I'm seeing on the internet now like shaving your head is in. Justin Bieber did it, Robert Pattinson did it, one of the Jonas brothers went to the Met Gala with a shaved head, so I just, I, it seems like whatever I do with my hair, it just, it becomes the trend. I'm not the trendsetter, but it's, it's becoming kind of, it's becoming bothersome a little bit. I don't know what to do with my hair, similar to you. Yeah, you're running out of options. Well, like for me, the man bun was never, was never the idea. It was just kind of came about as a necessity during games because I stopped being able to see when I went to shoot. So you were going so, for more of the caveman look with your hair. No, I mean, that was never the idea, but thanks for, thanks for lumping me in with that demographic. <laughs> The Seattle yeah, no. grunge rocker look. Yeah, you got to got to represent for the Pacific Northwest. Speaking of Seattle, uh, the city council recently voted against this new arena plan, five to four. And the idea, in, I'll let you kind of provide it, all the the pertinent details. But the idea being that you know if they can build this new arena, that hopefully they could attract an NHL and NBA team. You're, you were a diehard Sonics fan growing up. Basketball is so important to you in Seattle. Give me your thoughts on this whole deal. I, I know you're going to be biased, but talk a little bit about the arena vote and, and what's going down in Seattle as they try to get a team. It's an extremely frustrating, saddening. I mean, you can throw 20 different negative emotions towards what's going on with regards to the arena and specifically how the city and the city council are handling the process of trying to get a team back here, which is, you know, still 10 years after the team left the Sonic, you still see Sonics gear everywhere. People still talk about the Sonics in conversation. It's, it's part of the fabric of the city that was here, you know, long before a lot of the major corporations that you see now, the Microsoft, the Amazons, uh, Starbucks, every, the things that people associate with the city before there was that there were the Sonics and, you know, like I said, it's been 10 years since they've been gone, and Chris Hansen, the lead investor who's been trying for four or five years, you know, we thought we had a team ready to move here in the Sacramento Kings, and last minute they were able to get an arena for them to, to keep them in Sacramento. There have been many other rumors, but the most frustrating part, I think, about the process is the deal that, that Chris Hansen is offering the city. He's, I don't see any precedent of a better deal for the city that private investment has ever offered with regards to a professional sports franchise. He's, he's buying all the land for the arena. He is going to fund the arena himself with public loans that obviously the city then makes the money back with interest. And then long-term he's gifting the arena back to the city. So it's really on paper, you you look at it and you find it hard to believe that you as a citizen of the city, outside of being a Sonics fan with no rooting interest as a city council person, as anybody in, in city politics, you say, how could one turn down this deal? But as is often the case with politics and politicians, the things that make the most sense never end up coming to fruition. And that's, that's kind of where we're at, at at this stage in the game. I know you're frustrated by it. And I know a lot of people in Seattle are frustrated by it as well. Seattle is, uh, to me, one of the best sports towns. I know you're a huge Mariners fan. You were at the game last night. Obviously, yeah, a huge I'm at the Mariners right now, though. JJ, yeah. they're one of the big. They're. Uh, I don't mean to cut you off, but they're, no, they're you're putting good. a nice little, uh, nice little stake in the ground to try and stop the arena from being built as well. Yeah, want to yeah, make something sure about the, the the traffic flow or the scheduling. There was an issue with that. It's it's basically a it's a street called Occidental that runs seven blocks. It's right south of Safeco Field, and it's already it's already been interrupted, ironically enough, by Safeco, the Mariners' stadium. And the issue that they say they're hung up on is vacating two more blocks of that 
back alley, you know, to allow for the arena be, to be built. At least that's the excuse they're using as to why they're putting yet another roadblock in the process. You and I last year when we were both on the Clippers, we had the chance to spend a little bit of time with Balmer after a game one night. And he kind of expressed his frustration with the process of Seattle trying to get a team. And he basically said that, you know, with Milwaukee getting a new arena, Sacramento getting a new arena, that it was looking pretty bleak for Seattle. Assuming there's not going to be a, a team that moves in the next five to ten years, what do you think the effect of expansion would be if they were to add a team in Seattle on the overall product of the NBA? Well, I think that's that's something that historically, if if you look at the naysayers, they would say diminishes the overall product. But And also, if you look at the prospect of adding an expansion team here, you most likely have to balance it out with another team in the Eastern Conference. So it would more than likely be, be two teams coming along. And would you want a team in Charleston, South Carolina? I would love a team in Charleston, South Carolina. I'd you love could to go play to, for a team in Charleston, South, South Carolina. That's a you, wonderful town. But You could, you could go I to think, Husk every other night. Yeah, it'd be wonderful. Uh, but I think the side note to that is I don't know that the – and I haven't run the numbers, but the way that the TV revenue will come flooding in – this year and the next couple of years and with the prospect of a new collective bargaining agreement on the horizon as well it's kind of uncharted territory in terms of the amount of basketball related income uh the total basically the total revenue that the league generates yet to be seen how it's going to be spent and how the league will react to it well for most nba guys that were in the nba when seattle had a team a lot of us are frustrated by it too early in my career in orlando my favorite road trip, in all seriousness, was when we would hit the Pacific Northwest because we'd always, we'd always go to Portland and Seattle. We usually have about four or five days between the two cities, so you'd be guaranteed to be in one of the cities for two or three days. And they're two of my favorite cities in the U.S. And certainly Portland, I've talked about this recently on one of my podcasts, but Portland is one of my favorite cities to visit as a road city. What, what are some of your favorite road cities? Maybe the, the ones, obviously, New York, San Francisco, those are my two favorite. What are some kind of off the beaten path, maybe, some underrated road cities to you? Well, I don't, obviously, I think you got to throw L.A., New York. You can't really count those for, for obvious reasons. I'm, obviously, San Francisco is a, a wonderful city. I'm really a fan of Toronto. It's, it's kind of rough a lot of the times when we go up there because due to the schedule, it's in the dead of winter, and you, you see kind of the worst side of of the city when it's 15 degrees and snowing out. But I got a, I had an opportunity to go up there during the lockout uh, a few years ago. And during, it was, I believe, in the fall and had an unbelievable experience. Uh, so Toronto is definitely one of my favorites. Where else would I throw in there? What's another one you like? I'm going to throw – yeah, Chicago. I mean, Chicago's great. Good, good town. I'm going to throw one in there, and it's similar to Toronto in that the weather's always awful whenever we play there, but I think it's a world-class city. Minneapolis, Minnesota. Yeah. Great restaurants, great music scene, great sports town. I also, Chelsea, if you're listening to this, please cover your ears, but I also dated a girl for two years in college that was from Minneapolis, so I got to spend some time up there in the summer and go to Twins games and go out on the lake. It's an awesome city. Well, I think, I think that's like a lot of the Midwestern cities. That If you were a baseball player, your experience would be completely different from that of, of playing in the NBA if that's your hometown because you experience baseball season, summer, the lakes, everything, all the best the cities have to offer. No question. I, I think being a Joe Maurer or somebody like that, your, your opinion of Minnesota is a little bit different. Than, uh, than maybe a guy who's played for the T-Wolves for a couple years and, and moves during the summer as, as soon as the, uh, the season is over. You're listening to the Vertical Podcast with J.J. Redick. Spencer, I'm not trying to give you a hard time. I know you didn't graduate college, but it's graduation time and the beginning of a whole new chapter in most people's life. Heading into the so-called real world can be an exciting adventure. That is, until you start looking at all those loans, you're going to need to pay for it all. Private school, public school, let's be honest, it's expensive no matter where you go. And while student loans can be great, paying them off is no picnic. Well, someone's figured out a better way, and that's SoFi. SoFi is helping people beat their debt with student loan refinancing that saves an average of $19,000. Members get great free perks too, like career coaching and resume building workshops, and even tips on how to become a better negotiator. 
So enjoy graduation, enjoy this time right now, treat yourself and take that victory lap, but then get off to a good start with the help of SoFi. SoFi supports the Vertical Podcast, and we all want you to roll out of college on good financial footing. Visit SOFI.com to learn more. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. All right, Spencer, let's get back to it. We're on the subject about the NBA and the Seattle arena issue. There's some things about the NBA that seem like they get constantly brought up as things that need to be changed, whether it's the scheduling, you know, back-to-backs, the number of games. Is there is there anything about the NBA that you would change? It could be a small fix, a big fix. Anything that you think of? Uh, there's nothing. I think, like you said, it's always there are the things that everyone talks about. I think the biggest thing that I've been hearing people talking about is the schedule, obviously, uh, was rectified to a certain extent this year, and, and I almost thought it was was a little bit harder on the body, not in a weird way. I think you kind of get conditioned to the back-to-backs and then having that guaranteed day off the next day as opposed to just seemingly having a game every other day. But I'm going off a little bit of a tangent there. I think the other one that people talk about a lot is the HACA strategy and, the, and fouling the, the poor free-throw shooters, and I think it would be a shame if, uh, if they do change that rule, I think it's, really, it's I think it's part of the fabric of basketball, and I think if you're, I think it's great strategy if it works out. And I understand from a fan's perspective, it's tough to watch, but as also a guy that spent a lot of time working on free throws and improving at free throws, I think you know it, it'd be frustrating to see that skill set and that specialty that you know that a guy like myself or you or you have worked hard to hard to improve at to see the value there go away. I get that argument. I really do. I, I think the Hacka, Jordan, Hacka, Shaq, whatever you want to call it, I think it needs to be uh, done away with. And my argument would be that, and it's a lot of people's argument, would be that it's detrimental to the flow of the game. Therefore, it's detrimental to the product. And I mean, even watching the, the end of the second quarter yesterday between Golden State and Portland, it was brutal to watch. And it you know, from my perspective, of course, I'm biased because I've played on the Clippers the last three years. You know, we have stretches of games where, you know, it's not good basketball. And it seems to me like over the course of time in basketball, they've done things to help improve the flow of the game and the product of the game. An easy example would be the shot clock. I mean, Absolutely. the reason we have a shot clock is so that teams can't just hold the ball for minutes on end. Have you ever, I mean, have you ever been to a really bad high school basketball game? Oh, that's our, our, <laughs> Where it's like biggest, 24 to rival, 21 at oh, the end of the game? Our biggest rival, O'Day High School, that was their old coach who was a legend up here, Phil Lumpkin, rest in peace. That was his style of play. That was his strategy. They would play defense, pass the ball until the other team gets bored, score, and have it be 40 to 30 by the end of the game. It was infuriating, but you take the benefits and, and the rules that you have and, and you you know, as a coach, you got to make the most out of them. But I, I see that side. I see the counter argument as well for the the hack of rule or the doing away with it. I think I think part of it's just me being selfish. You know, looking at it through kind of a a different colored lens. Again, I I do agree with you. Let me give you another example, and that would be you know the, the old post up Charles Barkley rule where you just play bully ball and you back the guy down till you get to the paint. You know, the legal defense rules were different back then. And so you would have to go double team. You couldn't yeah. stunt. You couldn't dig like you know what we call stunting now uh, in the post. And they changed that. They also changed the hand check rule. So these rules hurt some players. They benefited other players, but they helped the product of the game and the flow of the game. And I and that's why I think ultimately I think they're going to have to change the rule because it's now it's gotten to the point, and the data would back this up this year. Shout out to Kevin Pelton. But the data would back it up because it's not just one or two guys getting hacked anymore. It's one or two guys a game, it seems like, and, and the data would back that up. But from the counterpoint, the free throw is the best shot statistically in basketball. If you say, what's the best thing that can happen to our team when we come down as a team, numbers-wise, it is to get fouled and shoot a free throw. It's the most efficient shot in the game. So obviously then there's a huge value in being able to make free throws, at what point is it on the onus of the player to say, okay, 
I got a whole summer. I'm going to go. Yeah, but these guys work at it. You can't tell me that DeAndre and Andre Drummond. I mean, these. I play with Dwight. Dwight would shoot hundreds of free throws after practice every single day after every shoot around. These guys work at it. These guys work at it. So it's it's to me, it's not on the onus on the player. Guys are trying, and and part of it. DJ came on the podcast. He talked about the mental part of it. I think that has a lot to do with it for for any athlete in any specific skill. But I, I just, look, I, I'm a fan of the game. And I don't know that we'll agree on this, but I just think for the overall product of the game, we need to get rid of that rule or at least alter the rule a little bit so that it makes a little bit more sense and we're not having these three-hour drag-out games where there's not actual possessions happening for minutes on end. I want to give you one other thing okay. that I would change about the NBA. And I think you'll agree with me on this. I don't mind the schedule. Like I like playing 82 games. It's what we condition our bodies to do. I don't get the eight preseason games. I don't get that at all because most of them are a wash anyways. You're not really playing your guys. You're playing, you know, for most of the preseason, you might have 17 or 18 or 19 guys on your team. So you're playing some of those those guys, and maybe it's to get a look at them. And I get that. But to me, if you just if you just shorten the preseason by two weeks, it would eliminate a lot of schedule issues. JJ, it's absolutely brutal that we do play eight preseason games. And I think, I mean, obviously I know you found being around good veteran coaches that, that understand and and was the case for us this year. When you have a good coach that, that kind of understands and, and has been around when he gives you a break in a couple of those preseason games, the difference that can make. But for example, we obviously earlier in the year we both our teams went to China. And it was a great trip. It was an unbelievable experience. But it was for us getting over there. It took us I think 22 hours in the air to get over there. 18 back. I mean, it was absolutely brutal from that regard. And we played we played a game. I think we landed on a Wednesday or a Thursday and had a game again on Saturday. And then you know, and then a regularly scheduled programming preseason games from there on out. I think. It, like you said, it's it's a simple fix. I know why the teams love it as a revenue stream because they get their home games. They they the tickets are mandatory for season ticket holders. I understand from that regard, but it just from our perspective on paper, it, t- it makes too much sense to cut that down and and not. I don't like. And, and we also live in a different era where guys' nutrition has changed, training methods have, have changed. You know, nothing against the guys that played back in a different era but i've talked to my uncle about this and he said you know guys used to use training camp you know when it was off season it was off season and guys used training camp to get into shape and to get back rolling where they could play in games now guys come in are working out all summer they're they're staying in shape and they come into training camp really ready to hit the ground running so i think that's something that that also has to be considered you make, when you're you make a about, great point back in the day even even as Early on in my career, there were guys that would use those eight games and that whole month of October to get into basketball shape. But with our contracts being shorter now, you know, back in the early 2000s, you could sign a seven-year deal. We're all signing three- or four-year deals. You know, for the max guys, you're getting a five-year deal. But they're all shorter. Most guys have options now. There's there's incentive to stay in shape year-round. And with social media now, you can't afford to come into camp out of shape because everyone will know it. And social and media, that you will get end up in the wrong, in, in the wrong oh, man. photo in July. And <laughs> you, yeah, you people, can't afford that. Yeah. I mean, no, you can't afford that either. So yeah. I, I do think it makes sense to do it. Do you remember the lockout year? I mean, we had like maybe a two or three week preseason. There were two games. They picked a team that was geographically close to you. For us, it was I was in Orlando. We were we played Miami a home and away. Two games, and then the regular season started. I loved it. It was perfect. Two games I, is all you I, I think that's – I will be one of the happier guys around if they can figure out a way to, to make that work for both sides. I, a quick question. I, I don't mean to circle back too far, but to the free throws. And you talked about asking DJ about the mental side of free throws, which honestly is I, – I, I can't put a percentage on how much of, of free throws are the straight mental – mental game but it's a large portion of it what what do you think about what do you focus on what's your i know your physical routine when you go up there but what's your mental routine that you're doing inside your own head to prepare to make go up and make two three free throws well it's part of it is the confidence part you know and and it's dj talked about i hope i don't airball it was a thought that 
you know, early in his career would go through his head. I hope, I just hope I don't airball it. I understand where he comes from there. Yeah, I I get it. I get it. But my thought is, let's say I get fouled. I got two shots. I'm thinking to myself, okay, I just scored two points. Like there's no Mm -hmm. doubt in my mind. If I miss the first one, let's say I do miss the first one, then, you know, from a, just a, a mathematical standpoint, I think to myself, okay, there's no way I can miss the second one. And I've maybe done that like once or twice in my career where I've missed them both. I don't even know if I've done it tw- maybe once. I don't know. So, so to me, it's the confidence part. It's I'm going to go up here and I'm going to make both shots. The, you, you mentioned the routine, and the routine is important. And, and for me, my routine has changed a lot. In college, you know, I had one of the highest percentages ever. I think I shot just under 92% from my career. But I had this long routine where I would spin the ball, dribble the Way ball, and that I'd do there. that. Yeah, I'd do that three times. And then I got to the pros and I shortened it a little bit. And now I just take one dribble and shoot. And the reason for me is the longer I'm at the line, the more I think. I don't want to think. I also don't look at the rim until I'm ready to shoot. I I always get freaked out by guys who are doing this whole routine and they're staring at the rim. It weirds me out a little bit. I don't don't think that's healthy. Absolutely. I was taught. I was lucky enough to be taught back in sixth or seventh grade to, to kind of find a point in, on the floor in between your feet and the rim and then do whatever routine it is, spin it, bounce it, whatever you do to get you comfortable. And then, like you said, find the rim right before, right before you go to shoot. And I think that, and, and like you said, the confidence and, and, and just trying to focus as little on, eliminate the, the possibility of missing. I think that's, that might be the biggest thing. Also, the, the, again, going back to the timing of everything, I think the longer – it's the only play in basketball where everything stops. All eyes are on you. And most people probably wouldn't admit this, but I'll admit it. Even though I'm confident going up there, the longer I'm up there, the more doubt creeps into your subconscious. Absolutely. So for me, I'm like, let's just shoot it. Let's just muscle memory it because I've done it's, this a million it's like, times. It's like when you get fouled – when you know the, the TV timeouts are coming and you get fouled on the last possession before where you know you're going into timeout before you get to shoot the free throws. It's like you, you want to shorten it and you just want to make it as routine and as, as simple as you can. All right, changing paths a little bit here. I want to ask you about your experience this year in Charlotte. We talked a bunch. We, we, you and I got to hang out a ton when we were in China and in your early – thoughts on Steve Clifford were pretty spot on from my experience in Orlando. Just a, a great coach and by all accounts, a, a pretty awesome communicator as well. Just give me your thoughts on him as a coach, the, the success he's had in Charlotte. What makes him so good? Well, I don't think it's any coincidence. He's, he has a ton of experience working for uh, working under great coaches, you know, dating back to his time in New York and then working with, with Jeff Van Gundy, Stan Van Gundy, under those guys. And I think that's he gives a lot of his credit to them to this day for kind of being his his mentors in the in the industry and in the profession. And I think the thing that that you never have to question about him is that it's his preparation and his work before before we go to play a game, be it preseason, regular season or postseason, he puts our team in the best position possible to succeed and he gives us the best game plan possible to succeed and obviously it doesn't always come to fruition but it's not it's not because we weren't prepared or or the game plan wasn't didn't allow us to be successful the thing that always struck me when i was in orlando was how much time stan spent on film and game preparation and how much time his assistants one of which was steve clifford spent on film and game preparation. I always felt like going into a game, going into a playoff series, there wasn't going to be a more prepared team than us. Did you get that sense this year? Absolutely. And it gives you, it gives you that confidence and it gives you an edge going into the games that you know matching up, that you know going against your opponent, that you have that. We always gave, gave Coach a hard time because when we walked through plays, you know, normally in, a, in an NBA shoot-around you go, you do whatever, you run through your offense, you put your little tweaks in, then you walk through. All right, these are three or four plays that, that the other team is going to run. These are the ones we got to key in on. I mean, with, with Coach Cliff, you're doing 10, 11, 12 plays per shoot-around in the preseason. You know, not to mention when, 
when you get to the real games or, or to the postseason, when you start seeing all the the different you know combinations and adjustments, and, and when the teams really go deep into their deep in their quiver to come up with stuff. So with that, he he mentioned it uh, at a particular shoot around the playoffs. He said, "This is why I prepare you guys all year to be able to focus in and, and lock in on so many different." different plays and actions is is because when you get to the playoffs you have to be able to you know every game and deal with the adjustments and I thought that was something that you know you fight it as a player you're walking through them in a game in in January and going, oh, another play another we know what they're going to do and but over the course of time it, it ingrains it in you and it really allows you to to become more of an expert on the X's and O's than than you might in different in different circumstances. I think you bring up a, a really great point, and it's a really interesting point, and that's just pattern recognition. And so much of the NBA breaks down to five or six plays, and teams use you know different actions or misdirections to disguise plays. But as you move along in your career, and as you move along in a season, you begin to recognize those actions and those patterns over and over again. And if you're coached by a well-coached team, and, and I'll use Lawrence Frank as an example, the past two years in L.A. and, and Ty Lue before that and all my, my time in Orlando, is that you're drilled on these patterns over and over, whether it's in practice or shoot-around, so that when you get in a game or when you get in a playoff game, at a moment's notice, it's instinctual what you should do. Your reaction is instinctual because you recognize that pattern. And Cliff... Because he's a stand guy, I can only imagine how many plays y'all walked through before games. I, I, when I played for Stan, first of all, we would wear knee pads for shoot around and we'd go live for like <laughs> five or six I plays. Rumor. I didn't know it was actually we, true. We would go five on five live for like five or six plays and then we'd go game speed but not live for like another five or six plays. And then we would get to like the walkthrough portion, which would be another five or six plays. And there'd be times where Stan would say something along the lines of, all right, we're going to run through this last play real quick. They haven't ran this play in five games, but we're going to run it, run through it anyways. And I'm like, come on, man. Can't you just put that on the pregame film and just point it out? Like it becomes redundant. And part of it too is like the challenge as a coach, of course, and every coach has to balance this out is like our attention span is like 30 minutes. So you get to a point and it's like, oh my gosh, I just want to go on with my day. Well, the thing, thing that Cliff is always big about is getting your bodies going during shoot around. He, he, time and time again, he talks about the game doesn't start at seven. The game starts this morning at ten or ten thirty or whenever you do your shoot around, and it's kind of a cliche. You hear it time and time again, and and you know how it is. As everybody hates shoot around, and especially as you get you get older, you get further along into your career, and it's another shoot around, another shoot around, but. You realize over the course of time, like you were saying, when when you do have those good shoot-arounds and you get your body going, and, and by getting your body going and get your mind going early on in the morning, there is a carryover. And guys, uh, guys always try and act like there isn't, but it's inevitable. If you come out, you know, it's like the old saying, you can't you can't win a game in the first quarter, but you can lose a game in the first quarter. I think part of that rings true with shoot-around as well is, you know, there's nothing you're going to do in shoot-around. There's that, that, no one thing that's that's going to win the game for you that night. But if it's a bad shoot-around, if, if no one's paying attention, you're not soaking in the game plan, you're not focusing on your team's adjustments, you definitely can lose a game in that morning practice. I, I hate when people call it shoot-around when you don't even shoot anymore. But Yeah, a, it's, it's more of a practice. It's, it's interesting. That's another interesting point you're making because – you know, I really agree with it. And thinking about my career and, and specifically my time with Stan, I think I realized the importance of that morning activity more than anything. And I've carried it on now. Like, you know, with Doc, a lot of times we just meet at the arena and part of it is LA traffic. It's hard for some guys to make it all the way down to the practice facility and make it all the way back home, then make it all the way to the arena. They'd be in the car for like four hours a day. So, so sometimes we just meet at the arena before the game. But even when we do that, I still go to the gym in the morning. I do my shooting routine. I do my core routine. I do the ice tub. And for me, and I learned it from Stan a little bit, is just the the game itself is almost like the climax of the day. And there's this buildup that you have to get to throughout the day, You know, whether it's the way you eat, your nap, your morning routine, whatever it is, uh, but getting your body ready to go at, at 7 or 7.30. 
we we're such creatures of habit when it comes to everything. And I think is another thing as you go further along is you realize the value of the routine, whatever it is, the consistency and just staying in on everything from, from the on the court, the off the court to recovery, eating, sleeping, everything. And when you are locked into that, like you said, if you break up, you know, as much as we hate shoot around, it's like anything else. Then when you stop having it, if you have a bad game, it's like, Oh, I got it. I got to do what you do. I got to go in and maybe we're not doing it as a team, but I got to just, I got to stick with that routine where I wake up at the same time. I go, I go do this in the morning to prepare me mentally, physically, both to be successful whenever that game comes. I think it's another thing Coach Cliff was big on is like with the afternoon games. And I know having played with you guys, played with the Clippers, there's, there's a ton of them. You know, the, one of his big sayings is the team, the team that gets out early in the early games are usually the team that wins. You see more 10-plus point margins in the first half of these games than any other games. And it makes sense because when you do disrupt that that routine that your that your body's so tuned into, it produces, in a sense, kind of asymptomatic results. Yeah, I always have a different routine for those those twelve thirty games, and, and for a lot of guys, I think it's they're hard to play. It does disrupt the thing. Um, I've always found that I've always played pretty well in daytime games and and done well, but that's partly because of the increase in caffeine intake that I have that's what uh, I was just for those twelve thirty games. Yeah, you know me, man. Coffee to breakfast for those ones. Coffee black. That's how I do it. You're listening to the Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick. Spencer, I know you don't have to worry too much about getting a good seat for games, but obviously not all of us are so lucky. It can be really tough getting a seat to a game or concert that's in town, especially for a good price. That's why the best place to go when you need tickets is SeatGeek. I'm telling you, it's the only place I ever go to buy tickets to a game or concert. You'd be crazy not to try it. They make it so easy. I mean, there's virtually no hassle in getting the exact seats you want. And it's pretty cool how they do it. They pull all the tickets available on other sites into one place, so you save time and never miss a deal. You can even set alerts for upcoming events, and they'll let you know if ticket prices fall. Even better, every ticket on SeatGeek is ranked based on value, so you can immediately find underpriced seats. And before you buy, you can use SeatGeek's detailed maps to see the view from your seat. See what I mean? easy and painless. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone and I use it all the time because it's simple and it works. Oh, and best of all, SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the price. They show you the full ticket price from start to finish and never try to trick you with huge fees on the checkout page. Now, pay attention to this next part because it's really important. My listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. That's 20 bucks right in your pocket. And to get it, all you have to do is this. Download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab, and click add a promo code. Then enter promo code JJ. SeatGeek will then send you $20 after you made your first ticket purchase. It doesn't get any easier, so go support them like they support this podcast. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code JJ today. All right, one other thing I want to ask you about from playing this year in Charlotte, and it's something that I've I've thought about like over the last like five or six years, however long he's been an owner. But what is it like playing for MJ? I mean, he is the GOAT. I mean, he is the greatest of all time. There's no question. And the reason I say that is because everyone else gets compared to him. You know what I mean? Like, uh, is he better than Jordan? No one's saying like, Bill Russell, is he the greatest of all time? Is, is, he, is he better than Kareem? Well, yeah, I mean, they're both greats, but Jordan is like the standard bearer. And... He's sitting five feet from you during the game. Is there more pressure, less pressure? Is he colloquial with you guys? Like, well, how, how does how does that whole relationship work? No, I, I think he's the thing you first notice when you get there. Obviously, he sits. He might as well be on the bench. He sits right next to the end of the bench. You know, as close as he can be the, to the action is his competitiveness. As you know, obviously changing half, being in the owner seat, it's he's still as competitive as anybody in the gym. He wants to win as bad as anybody in there. And and if you watch him during the games, you know I was I was hurt for a stretch this year, and so you get a chance to observe some of the stuff that you miss when you're playing, and you just see how locked into the games he is. And I mean, it's it's no secret he's as successful as he was, but I think you do have to kind of make that adjustment and try and block it out to a certain extent when you play for him that 
you know, there's times when you run around the, you walk around the corner in the locker room after a game, and you stand in there, and it just kind of hits you like, oh <laughs> shit, that's MJ. Like, yeah. and then there's other times when you're talking to him, and and, and it's just it, you're having a basketball conversation, and, and it's just the norm. So I think you have to try as hard as you can to look at him as Mike, you know, and, and as hard as it is, and, instead of as MJ, because despite the fact that he is the greatest and, and he's the goat, as you said his role is essentially as your owner, as your boss. And you have to try and, you have to try and separate the kind of legend of him from, you know, the relationship that you have as, as an owner to a player. That's a great way to put it. Well, Spencer, since I have you on, I want your help for this week's four on four. This week's four on four is sponsored by SoFi. And in honor of college graduation week, we are going to do the four things that you wish you knew when you graduated college a little caveat to this of course is that you have not graduated college i was gonna say you but in your case guy for this one <laughs> yeah but you, you seem like you can articulate some things so in your case the four things you wish you knew when you kind of left school and and moved out into the real world so the four things that both of us wish we knew when we became nba players in my case when i graduated from duke in your case when you left school at 19 and entered the NBA, I'm going to let you start with this one. What, what is one thing you wish you knew uh, back then? First and foremost, I wish I was more financially literate. Uh, obviously something that I definitely could have benefited uh, having stayed in school longer and educating myself in that arena. But I think just on a kind of a broader spectrum, I don't think we really do a good enough job as a whole educating kids on just the simple things, the simple skills coming out of college, budgeting, understanding interest rates, understanding, you know, bigger market trends in general, how to, how to better equip yourself. For example, when I got drafted, I got a, a check, an advance check from the Kings and I went and spent it on a car. And I think uh, that's something if I would do over, I would do it a little differently, but uh, that being said, it's that's that's something that I wish I would have taken more time to prepare myself and to educate myself at that at that point in my life. We don't, as a society, do a good enough job of teaching financial literacy at, at a young age. I took maybe one class in high school that had to do with you know business and finances. Yeah, I didn't take anything in college. I mean, I was at Duke for four years. Um, part of that was because I was trying to avoid Econ twenty five because it was. Uh, apparently a very difficult class. But to expand on your point, my second thing uh, of the four things that I wish I knew when I was done with school would be the idea of compound interest. Understanding that if you do have you know extra income, to invest that as early as possible in your 20s, the compound interest will make the value of that investment exponentially greater when you reach retirement age. And Part of it is people don't have extra income to invest. I understand that. Uh, but even if you could just get, let's say, 100 bucks a month away at an early age, starting right when you're done with school, if you can, if you can budget that, the amount of money that that would be worth you know, going forward, let's say when you're 65, is in the hundreds of thousands. Uh, whereas if you waited and you didn't start saving for retirement and you didn't Think about these things to your late 40s or your you know early 50s. You're really going to find yourself uh, at a disadvantage. Third thing for you, th- something you Third wish thing, you knew: taxes. Yeah. Understanding oh. taxes and oh, the way to navigate through the world of taxes and, and how to take advantage of write-offs, what to be prepared for. Another example: when I got drafted, uh, when I got the same advance check from the Sacramento Kings, I looked at it. Uh, it was for X amount of money, and I looked at the gross, what was on the head of the check, and then I looked down, and it started going through everything, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, everything, and then I looked at the net, and to my absolute chagrin, uh, over 55 or 60% of it was gone. I called my dad right away. I said, Dad, what happened to my money? What's this? And I started going through, what are these taxes? And I'll never forget him on the other end of the line. I was in New York and uh, he, was, he was back at home in Seattle and he just started laughing. He goes, you know, he goes, son, welcome to the real world. 
so that uh so under like i said understanding taxes their implications where advantages can be had within the system i, I definitely wish I, I would have been more prepared to navigate that necessary evil we'll call them i think when i came out of college and and signed my first nba contract and you see the number that you're going to make that's like you think that and, and it's no different for anyone who who's on their first job you see a number whether it's fifty thousand seventy five thousand forty thousand whatever it may be you see that number and you're like okay that's that's my number that's what i have to spend in a year i have this amount of money but then you know that first check comes and you're you realize oh shit um this is not what i budgeted for and so there's there's an adjustment period there. And so understanding taxes is important. I'll use the example. Uh, my, my little sister, she was working out here in L.A. in marketing, and she also has a, a side small business that she, she does. And watching her do her taxes, <laughs> she was living with me for like two months during the season. Watching her do her taxes for like two weeks, it hurt me. It was frustrating for me. And so... You know, it was, it was really her first time doing that. So understanding those mechanisms, like you said, the write-offs, especially if you have a small business, understanding those write-offs, you know, how to best take advantage of your tax situation. It's it's different for everyone. is very important. Fourth well, I thing think, I wish I, I knew. Think the thing that oh, go ahead. That can vary and, and has gotten people I know in trouble is understanding if if your taxes are withheld or if they if they aren't, because a lot of people, like you said, when they see that first check. And some businesses, and in the case of many small businesses, your money is not withheld, and so it goes into your account. And when it goes into your account, you, you know, you don't necessarily pay attention to it until six, seven months later, when it comes right. time to file, you realize, oh, this account over here, or this payment over here was was not withheld, and I've spent it, or I've done whatever with it, and now I have to backtrack. I think that's that's important as well. No question. Uh, for NBA guys, you know our. Our money is automatically withheld from our NBA checks, but for any off the court money endorsements, correct? Uh, there's you know there's no withholdings. You you get your check. The agency that you you know w- you know work with and negotiated whatever amount of money for you know shoe deal or an appearance fee, they take their cut and they they wire you the money. And uh, you know my rookie year when it came to tax time, I owed a large amount of money because I had gotten these endorsements after my time at Duke and, uh, and, you know, didn't even think to pay my taxes. And this is a true story and it's crazy to say this, but you know, I had, um, I had some money in investments at the time and tax season came. My advisor at the time said, this is what you owe in taxes. I actually had to sell stocks to pay my taxes that year, which is crazy. I, I didn't, I didn't budget to pay the taxes on my, my off the court earnings. All right. Fourth thing that I wish I knew. And all these other things are really important, but for whatever reason, this thing really stands out to me. <laughs> the amount of money that should or shouldn't be spent on a wardrobe. Oh, um, man. I don't, you know, you, you have to dress for the job. I, I firmly believe in that. You know, as a rookie, I didn't get to dress for a lot of games, especially the first three months of the season. Uh, so I was always in a suit. And I wish that I had not tried to wear a different suit to like every four games. I, I wish I just, just had just bought one or two really good fitting suits and just rotated between those two suits. White shirt, simple tie, kept it basic. I think that's the most important thing that I wish I knew is that it, I just wish that I would just kept the wardrobe simple. And going back or also to the compound interest thing, if I had not spent that money Ooh, that's what gets me. on suits uh, early on in my career, what would you have? What would you have yeah. saved? Not for all those Prada shoes that I don't even. I mean, like I, I have clothes in my wardrobe that I wear all the time that are from like six or seven years ago. I, I, mean, I keep clothes if I like something, and it's. I, I look for classic things. I look for the essentials: a nice bomber jacket, a nice varsity jacket, a nice wool pea coat for the winter when we travel. I mean, I've had the same stuff now because I've, I've found a, a good thing, but man, like, like I wish I didn't spend money on like three pairs of Gucci horse bit lo- loafers. Like that's stupid. I, uh, true story. I didn't start wearing fancy Italian suits till I saw you doing it. So I'm going to go ahead and blame <laughs> you on that one. 
Uh, touche. There is, you know, Dion said it. You look good, you feel good, you feel good, you play good, you play good, they pay good. There is a, there's something to be said there, but all in moderation. It can be done a lot, a lot more simply and efficiently probably than we did it in our right. younger years. Right. And part of it too, again, when I had a Donald on, uh, Donald Foyle, and we, we, we talked about a whole podcast about finances and athletes and, and one of the things we talked about, and again, I'll, I'll say this again, but one of the things we talked about was the fact that when we get to the NBA, when a professional athlete signs his first contract or a professional football player, whatever it is, you know, we've never had money in our hands before. We don't know what to do with it. We've never been told what to do with it. And there are early in the careers of a lot of NBA players some frivolous purchases. And I talked about some of my worst purchases on that podcast by the way, all, all these podcasts are archived on iTunes and Spotify if you want to go listen to them. But the O'Donnell Foyle podcast was, was a good podcast to listen to if you want to understand more about athletes and their finances. And, and it is, it's, they're difficult waters to navigate. I, I give my parents the most credit in the world for, for helping me early on in my career and, and to this day understanding what needs versus wants, necessities, investments, you know, liabilities, assets versus liabilities, what's something, even if it is a piece of clothing, like you said, a nice jacket, uh, a nice overcoat, for example, that you bought eight years ago that you still use, how you can look at, at you know, you're, you're almost investing in that versus a, a trendy pair of ripped denim right. $1,000 jeans that right. you might wear two or three times before the, the style cycle comes and goes. So, right. like I said, it's I would say, if I could add one one caveat, I would say surround yourself with great people around you, with, with people that are that are experts uh, from an early age, and don't think you know know it all. Don't think you have a bigger grip on it than you do. And uh, like I said, I'd like to give a little shout out to my parents for for steering me through that. They've steered you right. You've done well for yourself uh, in terms of managing your money. I would add to that as well. If I could do it differently, I would have asked better questions at a younger yeah. age. And I think to do that, and my advice to any recent college graduate is to find some sort of mentor. And maybe that mentor is someone that you look at and you say, man, that, that person that person has it together. It might be someone that's 10 years older than you, 20 years older. I don't know. That person has it together. It seems like their work life, their financial picture, it, it, it's all in balance. And then ask, ask questions to those people. I wish I had sought out. We had great vets on my team early in my career. I wish I had sought those guys' advice at an earlier age. It's all part of the maturation process, JJ. I agree. We, so we did a whole podcast with you in the tail end of the primary season, and we haven't spoken about Donald Trump, nor are we. We're going to save that for a different day. All right? Is that oh, cool? Oh, man. You got me excited. Okay. <laughs> All right, man. I really appreciate the time. Uh, our listeners appreciate the time. This was a, a great conversation. Spencer Hawes, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks as always for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick. I'd like to thank today's guest, Spencer Hawes. Remember to subscribe and listen to new and archived episodes wherever you listen to the podcast. Please tweet me at JJ Reddick for any questions and comments. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, SeatGeek, SoFi, and Mac Weldon. Be sure to support them the way they support us. We'll catch you next week. This has been a digital media production. Find your voice.